Hi, and welcome to the McGregor Dementia Support Ministry Podcast, a podcast providing relevant resources to those currently walking the dementia journey with their loved ones. Today's podcast is a session recorded from our Alzheimer's and Dementia Seminar held here at McGregor Baptist Church on February 18th, 2023. Today's podcast session title is Hear Me, I'm Hurting, How to Communicate with Compassion and Empathy by Dr. Ed Shaw. Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Pastor David, for those words of encouragement. I have uh, two more books that I hope to write. And uh, this is the title. This ta- the title of this talk is the title of the second of those. And it's called Hear Me, I'm Hurting. And the subtitle is How to Communicate with Compassion and Empathy. And um, as I mentioned to you, uh, this is a picture of my family back from 2012. And um, we, we encountered uh, a lot of uh, difficult and challenging situations just from a family standpoint after Rebecca was diagnosed with her dementia and had a chance to talk with a number of you now. And you know that um, after somebody in the family has a diagnosis of dementia, that the dynamics change. They change within the family. The dynamics change between family members out that are outside your nuclear family. They change with your friends. If you're still working with your coworkers. Everything seems to get tilted out of balance by the diagnosis of dementia in a loved one. And so um, what I wanna do is share with you some of the, the communication challenges that, um, that happened along the journey. And I'm gonna share some personal stories uh, along the way. And my wife, Claire, is gonna help me to role play um, one, one of the situations um, that was really quite common so, um, so in this role play, uh, I'm going to be Ed, husband to Rebecca, who has early onset Alzheimer's disease. And uh, she's going to play Claire, the wife to Jim, who has uh, sort of uh, regular onset, later in life onset Alzheimer's disease. And we're going to just role play a little uh, discussion together. Is that Ed Shaw? Oh my gosh, I have not seen him in so long. Hey, Claire. Oh gosh, it's so good to see hey. you. How are you doing? Oh, long I'm time. doing well. How about you? How have things been going? Well, um, you know, Rebecca is about five years into her diagnosis now. And um, just last week, I was serving coffee to her. And literally while I was pouring the coffee, she looked up at me and she looked at me and she said, I have no idea. You know, the same thing happened to me with Jim. I mean, we were sitting around last week and we were trying to watch a movie and, you know, it's kind of hard for them. They don't really follow things very well. And he looked at me and he he just acted like he didn't know who I was. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And but she... it was just so interesting how sometimes he knows who I am and sometimes he doesn't. And, you know, it makes me feel so sad when he does that sometimes. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I know. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I feel. But, you know, I just cannot seem to get my arms wrapped around this whole thing that we're going through. And, you know, he just keeps repeating himself and he doesn't know who I am. And do you know what I mean? Yeah, he looks at you. He and- does. He looks right at me. And I mean, I am just, you know, I can't believe how I f- it makes me feel. Yeah. So uh, this might be a hard talk for you to listen to because I'm going to challenge some of the ways that you communicate with other people. And um, so uh, for this book that I have sort of mapped out in my mind, I've got a number of ways that we shut down communication when we're communicating with others, especially others who are in pain. Now the tech, the the communication challenge that uh, Claire and I just modeled for you is what I call railroading. So it's where you have something that you want to share that you want to talk about, but as soon as you mention it to the other person, they sort of start talking about themselves or their situation. And as you saw with her, of course we rehearsed it that way. But as you saw with her, you know it became all about her, even though I shared something that happened that was very difficult. And that actually happened in our journey. There was about five years into the diagnosis, just not long after that picture was taken, I was serving Rebecca coffee. And the night before we had talked about the kids and talked about the things we talked about and something happened overnight. I still don't understand. And she looked at me And she said, I don't know who you are. And from that moment on, for the last three and a half years of her journey with Alzheimer's disease, she didn't know me as her husband. We had been together since we were uh, freshmen in college. And she didn't know our three adult daughters as her children. And I I just, I don't know what happened. And it it was the most painful moment of the journey. And yet being able to talk about that moment and other painful moments in the journey was really hard because the people who, you know, used to be our peeps, you know, a lot of those people went away as her disease progressed throughout the journey. And then people who I never expected would be close to us or be partners with us on that journey, they became uh, people who were very helpful. So it just, it changed everything. So I'm going to give you some other examples of how it is that we can shut down communication with others. So the next one is called minimizing. So uh, I had this breakout group in, in the last hour with people who were struggling with memory loss or had a diagnosis of dementia. And one of the gentlemen who was in the group was saying how whenever he talked to his sister about his diagnosis of early stage Alzheimer's disease, she would sort of shut him down, say, ah, it's nothing. We all have a little bit of memory loss as we get older. I'm sure that it's not Alzheimer's disease. I had this situation with Rebecca's mom, who for various reasons couldn't accept the fact that her daughter had Alzheimer's disease. And so she would minimize, well, Becky's just having you know, her, her memory's slipping a little bit. Everything will be fine. 
But think about when, when you do that, when you minimize how that makes the person feel who uh, is feeling the consequence of that minimizing. It makes, whoa, do you think, well, am I not telling the truth? Did you not think we went to the doctor and the, the doctor gave the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease? I mean, we were at Wake Forest, we were at Duke, we were at Mayo Clinic. They all said she has early onset Alzheimer's. Do you think that they were, that was just fictitious? That's minimizing. There's another thing that can happen called sidestepping. So I had a physician colleague of mine. So I was still practicing in oncology and a physician colleague of mine uh, who was another cancer doctor, he said, um, gosh, I heard that Rebecca was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He said, did you see the movie Still Alice? Uh, and I said, well, I've, I've heard of the movie. Yeah, you know, in the movie, she was a speech pathologist like Rebecca was. And then and he starts talking about the movie. Well, you know, that's really, I wasn't interested in the movie. I was interested in somebody maybe caring that my wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. But sometimes people will just, they're uncomfortable with it. So they kind of sidestep. They move on to a different issue. It's sort of related, but not really. The next uh, strategy is called projecting. So we were talking about this at dinner last night, uh, Kim and Claire and I. And so um, this is an example of projecting. So I have a brother-in-law who's uh, uh, a Lutheran pastor. And after a couple of years in the ministry, he became an actuary. And so that's what he did for his career. So he went from pastor to actuary. He's a really smart guy, like he has a really high IQ. And so he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that Rebecca has Alzheimer's disease. I would never want that disease. He said, for me, like my mind is so important to me. I don't know what I would do if I had Alzheimer's disease. I think I might kill myself. So I'm just trying to think, well, what is he saying to me? You know, like, is he saying I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, like do my wife in? And it was interesting because um, his sister, so his wife is Rebecca's sister, and they lived a couple hours from us in North Carolina at the time, and they would never come to visit. And it was because it was so painful for him and for them to see, you know, her sister or his sister-in-law you know, go through this cognitive decline. But people often will project their own fears about the diagnosis sort of onto you and your situation. And it's a way of avoiding sort of dealing with you. Then there's spiritualizing. So I'll tell you this story. So um, Rebecca, uh, as she, probably six months or so before she passed away, you know, she she at this point had lost the ability to walk and she was in a, a wheelchair and she required two caregivers because she had a complication that occurs with people with early onset dementia uh, called posterior cortical atrophy. And her, her vision didn't work. It isn't that her eyeballs didn't work. She couldn't process what her eyeballs would see. And so she was constantly a fall risk. So we had to move to a home that had an open floor plan. We had very little furniture, no rugs, because she 
She constantly was a fall risk and always had to have somebody at her side. So, um, so her, the care was difficult. She was experiencing behavioral challenges. We were talking in this breakout group about sundowning a little bit, which is where in the late afternoon or evening, people with dementia will begin to have confusion, agitation, even aggression. They get confused. They want to go home. Rebecca had terrible challenges with, with sundowning at night. And the caregiving was really hard. So one morning I woke up and the right side of my face was paralyzed. My eye wouldn't close, my mouth was talking like this. And so I look in the mirror. So, you know, most people would panic, but you know, when you're a brain doctor, you look in the mirror and you go, well, I wonder what's going on here, right? And so I start doing a differential diagnosis. Well, could it be a brain tumor? No, I didn't have a brain tumor yesterday. I probably didn't get one overnight. Could it be a stroke? Well, maybe it would be a stroke, but you know, I was only 50 something and didn't really have risk factors for a stroke, didn't have any other symptoms. Start going through the list. I said, it must be Bell's palsy. So Bell's palsy is facial paralysis on one side caused by stress or maybe a virus, but whatever it was, I mean, my face was paralyzed on the right side and it took six months to get better. So when I would go in and do counseling, I'd literally have to hold my mouth up so I could talk like that, right? So somebody from church, I'm sure they were very well-meaning, but they see, you know what I'm gonna say, right? He said to me, well, you know, brother, God will not give you more than you can handle, right? So, you know, if assault and battery was not illegal in North Carolina, <laughs> but this is one of the things we do, you know. So I don't know if you get the bless your heart thing in, in Florida, but North, North Carolina, you know, when somebody says, well, bless your heart, that, that means something really bad is going on, you know. But spiritualizing is a way that we can diminish a person's pain. So what do all these scenarios have in common? Well, they have in common that when I was hurting, I didn't feel heard. That for one reason or another, and there are other ways that we can shut down communication, for one reason or another, I just, I didn't feel heard and, and I was hurting. And that's, that's what really promoted wanting to do this talk. So um, in the purple colored book uh, of mine called the Dementia Care Partners Workbook, I wrote that book around what I call the eight central needs of dementia care partners. So these are things in my own experience with Rebecca and partnering, you know, walking with literally hundreds and hundreds of families and several thousand people on the dementia journey. These are the eight things that I found really are kind of at the core of what care partners need. And so the first central need is the one that really this talk is about. And it's the need to tell and retell your story. Now the others um, are there for your information. And if you wanna read about those, really each chapter of, of the book covers one of those central needs. Um, but the need to tell and retell your story is absolutely essential when you're experiencing pain as a human being on whatever kind of journey you're on. Today, the journey is nominally about 
dementia uh, if you're on that journey, but it can be any difficult journey that you're going through in your life. So a good friend of mine who's um, a counselor and we've, we've written a book together um, about leading support groups, uh, he's, he's a grief, world famous grief counselor. He says, you need to feel it to heal it. And the way you feel it is talking about it. So uh, I'm gonna give you an example. So I call it the car accident story. So my parents uh, lived in South Florida uh, for the, the last years of their life. They lived in Southeast Florida in the Boca area. And uh, there was a point where my mom had uh, a heart attack and she had to have bypass surgery. So I came down uh, from, from North Carolina to be with her. And uh, we went, went and visited her in the hospital. And I remember after we visited her, my dad was gonna drive us back to his house. And I said, dad, why don't you let me drive? Cause he was older and he uh, was kind of shaken by my mother's uh, urgent surgery. And he said, no, I'll be fine. So anyway, we're driving on I-95. There seems to be a lot of traffic on that road. And, um, and a truck changed lanes and hit the car that we were in. So the truck was in the middle lane, we were in the left lane. So he slammed into my father's car. The car uh, immediately went and it hit the median, the cement median. We spun around a few times, we hit the median again and we came to a rest, so we were alive. But my father, he had broken his collarbone, the bone had broken through the skin, so it was a terrible fracture, he was in pain, you know, and I can, you know, when that accident happened, when I would talk about it, I would tell every detail. Yeah, we were going, and I can still picture that truck moving into our lane, and this has been 20, 25 years ago. So, when you have an experience like that, a traumatic experience, you know, the, so um, I was thinking maybe after talking to Pastor Mark earlier, I should have put like a hurricane uh, icon up there, right? Because you've all been through the hurricane or we could put the, co the little uh, cartoon of the COVID virus. We've all been through these situations. But when you first have a, a difficult experience, you know, the first time you talk about it, you talk about it in great detail. Right, so I tell a 20 minute story of the accident and the paramedics come and we go to the hospital and you know, my, all of that kind of thing. But then now when I say, oh yeah, we were on I-95 and a truck bumped into us and you know, we had a terrible accident, it's very different because each time you tell the story, each time you feel it, you heal it a little bit. You tell different aspects of the story and that's why the central, the first central need is to tell and retell your story. So as you go through the experience of say being a dementia caregiver, or now that you're um, what, five, six months from the hurricane, you're gonna tell that story differently because you've processed some of it. You know, some of it, the pain has resolved. Some of it, maybe you're even beginning to see, you know, some some amazing things happen from, from that hurricane coming here. I got some, there are some blessings that came out of that. You know, your perspective changes. And that's really the nature of what mental health counseling is, for the person to come and tell and retell the story and for you to walk alongside them and help them process what it is that, you know, they've learned from that experience 
in the sort of context of their bigger life. So you need to feel it to heal it. So the question is, you know, can you learn to be a good listener to somebody who's in pain? Um, And the answer is yes, you absolutely can. You just need to know some basic counseling skills. All right, so now in the middle part of this talk, in the next 10 minutes, I'm gonna give each of you a master's degree in mental health counseling, okay? So this is the nuts and bolts. And then if you see Claire afterwards, she'll give you your degree certificate, right? And then you go into practice. So um, there are some basic skills that are really fundamental to um, kind of the, the context in which you're a good listener. That's what I'll talk about first and then some very specific skills afterward. So um, so I like to say that the context of being a good listener is what I call the three Bs. And the three Bs are be present, believe in the person, and be empathetic. So be present, believe in the person, and be empathetic. So let's talk about those one at a time. So um, you can see I like clip art. You know, if you Google a topic and put clip art in the topic, you'll get these cartoons. So I, I kind of like these cartoons. So these are the rules for good listening. So um, first on the list is eyes. So in our, as human beings, and particularly in our culture as Americans, we communicate trust and caring and empathy through eye contact. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who, uh, if you were talking to them, I'll pretend I'm talking with you in the front, and they're kind of looking off this way while they're talking to you, it's very unnerving. You know, when people don't communicate with their eyes, um, it's it's just, it's very unsettling. And for people who are living with dementia, eye contact trumps what they hear through their ears. Because as I mentioned earlier, for some people with dementia, language function, either understanding spoken words or getting their words out is challenged. And so the most effective way you can communicate love and trust and empathy to really anyone, but especially to a person living with dementia is through eye contact. So eye contact is the most important component of sort of being present to someone. Now you can also, you can face them, you can sort of lean your body into them, you know, you can uh, just let them know that you're paying attention as they're talking. You know, you're honoring them with your presence. And that's the the notion of being present. So I mentioned that a good listener listens with their eyes. Kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? But when you're looking at someone, you're noticing their their body language, their expressions. You know, you're tuning in. I'll talk in a minute about empathy. You're not just being there and sort of nodding and being em- empathetic with your presence, but you're you're being what I call cognitively empathetic. You know, so by being completely there for them, you're understanding the why behind the what that they're saying. And that's the notion of what I'll call cognitive empathy. 
So when you're sort of completely there for the person, verbally and non-verbally, you're using good eye contact. Uh, in counseling, we call that congruence, that you're being genuine in that um, counseling relationship. And by the way, about 95% uh, of counseling is not done by professional counselors. It's done by us. You know, the people that we're in community with, our family, so our, our nuclear family, our church family, or our faith-based family, our um, friends, our colleagues, most counseling is just done by us helping each other. So being congruent is really helpful. And, you know, not having the cell phone, right? So you guys have been good, actually. I've been peering around looking at who's on their cell phone or their computer right now, and everybody's being very good. But, you know, cell phones have become such an incredible distraction. Yeah, so we could go on and on about that. But that's being present. The next thing is really a, an interesting thing. It was a concept promoted by kind of the father of modern counseling, a guy named Carl Rogers. So uh, Carl Rogers talked about something that in counseling we call unconditional positive regard. And that means that even though the person you're with may think differently than you, look differently than you, believe differently than you, that you believe that that person has worth. Kind of the way I paraphrase it is to say, every person has a story to tell. And um, you honor the person by giving them the time to hear their story. I wish I had more time to hear more of your stories today, but we don't have time for that. It's respecting the uniqueness of the person and accepting them, even though you may disagree with their thoughts, their feelings, and their actions. I remember one time I treated a man who, um, who uh, had a brain tumor. He was a young guy, and um, he had a big swastika tattooed on his hand. Now, I grew up in a Jewish home. I actually became a Christian in my adult life, but I grew up in a Jewish home. And for the family on my mom's side, some of them came to the United States, the late 1800s up through World War II, but the ones who didn't come were all extinguished at Auschwitz. And so when I saw that man's hand and I saw that swastika that he had tattooed in permanent ink, this was really hard because I knew that he and I believed really differently. And yet he was my patient and I had to care for him to the best of my ability, even though we had obviously very different beliefs about what that represented on his hand. And that's so, so now we could sort of change it right to political beliefs or beliefs and whether you get vaccinated, all kinds of things are so divisive in our culture today. And yet when you're honoring someone who's hurting, when you honor them, you have to set those things aside and hear their story and be with them in their pain. And then being empathetic. So empathy, kind of the counseling and laid definition, the definition I like the best is to be able to see another human being's pain through their eyes rather than your own. So Claire was up here role-playing earlier on, and she did a great job of being sympathetic, 
right? She sort of understood what I was going through because her husband was going through it, but there was no there was no empathy there because she was more focused on telling her story, that was the railroading part, than really listening to my story. So there are two kinds of empathy. There's emotional empathy. That's what you sort of communicate. You know, you've got the eye contact, you're present, and you're sort of tuned into that person's feelings. I think what um, what's the next level of of emotional empathy is that idea of cognitive empathy. And so as you're listening to the person and you recognize their emotion, so nominally human beings have four emotions. They're happy, sad, mad, or anxious. Everything else is a variation. When somebody is mad, sad, or anxious, when they're in pain, then you can uh, connect with them emotionally and feel their pain through their eyes, but then kind of the next level of understanding would be that cognitive empathy. Why is it that this particular experience is so difficult? We heard from one caregiver in our breakout session who was saying with mom, you know, it's, it's uh, when that late afternoon evening occurs and those, um, those sundowning behaviors occur, that gets really hard for me as caregiver. And so what I, you know, we didn't have time and that wasn't a, meant to be a counseling session, but what I would wanna know is, well, how did that make you feel? Like, what is it about your mom's sundowning? What particular thing makes you mad, sad, or anxious? Because any of those emotions would be fair game. And that's where the cognitive empathy comes in. Just requires you to think beyond what you're uh, seeing uh, to understanding why the person is saying, what they're saying. So um, I'm going to ask Karen to come up, um, and I want to uh, do a little um, uh, interview with Karen. So Karen Teeters is a member here, and um, she agreed to do this interview with me up on stage. She's very brave. So uh, Karen um, took care of her husband, Steve, who had a 17-year journey with Alzheimer's disease. Take a few deep breaths. <laughs> You're doing good. Um, and she was his primary caregiver. And um, Steve uh, died three years ago, uh, right kind of at the height of the COVID pandemic, didn't he? But Karen was, was a faithful caregiver. And, um, and so thank you for being willing to be here. So I'm gonna do just um, a short interview with Karen up on stage and um, and then uh, and then we'll have some more of the lecture. So Karen, thanks again. You're welcome. Can you guys hear Karen okay? Okay. So Karen, you were um, you were kind enough to to send an email to me kind of talking about your journey with Steve. It was a long journey. It was a long journey, yes. Yeah, and so um, I wanted to focus in on one particular part of the journey, which you you and I talked about a little bit yesterday, but um, t tell us if you would, there was a point um, while Steve was well into his years with Alzheimer's disease that he uh, talked about wanting to to marry another woman 
be with another woman. You guys had been married a really long time at that point. So just tell me a little bit about that. Okay. Steve and I had been married for 53 years. And one day, he tells me that, uh, that he's found another woman. He didn't know her name. He didn't know where she lived, but as a fitness person, she had a three-bedroom home that had one bedroom that had nothing but exercise equipment just for him. Uh, so many times he would ask me, well, when are you going to take me to her house? And I avoided him several times. I got upset with him different times. And one day I said to him, I said, well, Steve, she's a snowbird and she's up north right now. It was very, very difficult. He came to me one day and said, uh, since I'm going to marry this other woman, what should I do with my wedding ring? And how did that make you feel? Well, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And yet I had, I had formed in my mind that there was Steve, Steve I knew and loved, and then there was the not Steve. And so I learned to um, realize when it was not, it was not Steve and when it was Steve in our marriage. So tell me more about that, the, the Steve and the not Steve. Well, so, so much of the time, he, he was Steve. It was the man that I married, that I loved, that I lived with, that bothered our children. And yet there were times that, um, you know, he, he just, he just wasn't Steve. He was, he was never, you know, mean or, or cruel, but, um, there were just different aspects of him as a person that I didn't, that I did not recognize. D didn't recognize? No. Many times I didn't, I didn't recognize. Um, and quite honestly, there were times he didn't recognize me either. So I have, you know, I have to be fair uh, about that. There were many anxious times or many um, angry times. Uh, there was many times I wondered, you know, where are you, Lord? I need you was one of my favorite little songs that I would sing around around the house. As you talk about this, your eyes are glistening a little bit. Tell us, what are those tears for? Those tears are because... I loved him with all of my heart. And it makes me sad 
that he is no longer, you know, with, with me. And I thought the journey, the 17-year journey of being his caregiver was hard. But life without him is very hard. So if I understand you, some tears just because you, you still love him and you miss him. Absolutely. But some tears because it was a hard journey for you as a caregiver. It was a hard journey. It was a long, hard journey. Um, but I have to... Um, I have to say that my faith and um, my Snowbird Life Group, if I can give some plugs here, uh, also um, to Kim leading us in our support group. And after Steve passed away, our Stephen ministry here at McGregor have just been have just been so good and have carried me through uh, some really rough days and nights. Support. Support and love doing life together. That's what we do. Well, Karen, thank you for sharing with us. So what I want to transition to is just some, some basic counseling skills. Um, and I say that, you know, these skills amount to about nine words. And I say, these are the nine words that can absolutely transform your relationships if you follow the recommendations suggested by these nine words. So nine words encompassing three basic counseling skills that I think will make a big difference in your relationships. So this is by far and away the most important counseling skill and that's to listen. So if you noticed in that probably seven or eight minutes that Karen was up here, most of the time she was talking and um, I, I did say some things to her, a couple of words to encourage her to continue speaking, but it didn't really, it didn't really take much, even though she was really nervous when she came up here, she had a lot that she needed or wanted to talk about and you can facilitate that conversation you can do it with absolutely no words whatsoever some people have such little opportunity to talk about their pain that when they get with someone who's willing to listen who will honor them by just giving them time the most precious thing you can give to a, another human being um, they're just heard they're listened to. And that is by far and away the most important counseling skill is listening. And the way you listen is by making time for that person to be heard. That's the most important thing. So there are a few words that you can say to someone uh, to encourage them to speak. Now, very naturally, you know, people are fixers. Some of us, by nature of our personality, we're more fixers than others. You know, some will say, well, men are more likely to be fixers and not such good communicators. It isn't really a male-female thing. It's a personality thing. And some of us, 
by our very nature, we like to be problem solvers. But for people who are in pain, they really, they don't need to have their problems solved necessarily. What they need is for someone to listen to them. Because remember, you have to feel it to heal it. You have to tell and retell your story in order to make sense of it as the journey goes on. And the way you do that is by listening and you can encourage someone to tell the story. Like if they get stuck, if they start talking and all of a sudden they stop or they, they're not sure what to, what to continue saying, you can just say, well, tell me more. So I did that with Karen. I don't know if you noticed at one point in the conversation, she had said something and I said, well, just tell me more. And usually those three words will help jumpstart kind of another segment of conversation can be very, very helpful. Then third basic skill, the next group of words, you can ask the person, well, how does that make you feel? Now, this is really an important thing when you have a loved one who's got a cognitive disorder like dementia. How does that make you feel? Because the emphasis is on the feeling part. Um, we're going to do another role play towards the end of the session, and you're going to see um, that uh, I'm going to try and deal with the situation with Claire is going to play my uh, mother, my mother in this role play. I'm going to try and deal with it initially in a very cognitive way. And that's what happens a lot of times when we're um, we're interacting with a person who has dementia and they say something or do something that you feel the need to correct uh, what they said or what they're doing, we'll start to explain it away to that person. And explaining something, well, no, that, that's not right. Don't do it this way. Maybe it would be better for you to do it this way. Or let's say you're in a restaurant with somebody who has dementia and they're trying to order off the menu. That can be really challenging for somebody with dementia. Well, you've got your meat choices and your pasta choices and your poultry choices, and then you got this kind of, you know, and it's too much information. So it's, you know, well, what do you feel like eating? And let's choose between the chicken dish and the hamburger dish, you know, just make it really simple. But focusing on the feelings, when most people are needing to share their pain, what they're needing to share is the emotion associated with that pain, whether it's mad, sad, or anxious. Sometimes it can be happy too. There can be humorous heartbreaks that occur on the dementia journey, but the focus is on how does that make you feel? So if somebody says something to you and you're not sure how to respond, you know, like uh, when I've said, when I've told the story to people of Rebecca looking at me and saying, I have no idea who you are. I mean, what do you say to someone who's had that experience? Like, it's a terrible experience. And, but what you can always say is, well, how did that make you feel? Well, it made me feel really sad. It was actually, it was the biggest loss that I experienced in nine years of Rebecca having dementia, worse than when she physically died from her disease. So you can focus on the emotion. And so there is a branch of counseling called emotion-focused therapy. And um, that's really, it's sort of the basis of the, uh, the five love languages, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. 
is because essentially when you're in a counseling interaction with someone, whether you're just there as a lay person supporting them, you want to understand how they feel and the way you're going to help them to feel like talking and sharing is to help the person feel loved in that moment that you're empathetic, that you care about them, that you love them, and what they're experiencing in their story matters to you, and that you're encouraging them by loving them to share that story. So um, how does that make you feel? And if somebody is crying or somebody has starts having tears, you can ask the person, what are those tears for? You know, we can make a lot of assumptions of what the person's tears are for. When Karen was here, she her eyes were a little bit tearful as soon as she came up on stage. Maybe it was some anxiety about being up in front of everyone. Maybe it was some aspect of a 17-year-old, 17-year-long journey with a man that she loved and was married to for 53 years. There would be no way that I could predict what her tears are for. And it's really honoring to another person to just ask them. And you know, more often than not, what you think their tears are for is not gonna be what they're gonna tell you their tears are for. It's one of the most profound statements of counseling that I learned in two and a half years of getting a master's degree. So using these basic counseling skills of listening, tell me more, how does that make you feel? Tell me what your tears are for will absolutely transform relationships. So I'll challenge you to do something this weekend. Find someone to talk with and just honor 30 minutes with them or 15 minutes or an hour, however much time you have, and only use those words that are there. Either no words by listening, tell me more, how did that make you feel? Or, and if they have tears, what are your tears for? Or you can ask them what any emotion is for. You seem angry. What is that anger about? You seem anxious. You know, what are you nervous about? You know, name the emotion and ask them why they have that emotion. They will tell you. So these skills will transform relationships. And instead of having uh, people in your life who may feel brokenhearted because they weren't heard, you have people in your life who feel loved and listened to. Gary Chapman, uh, who goes to the, the church that, that Claire and I attend, um, is the author of the book, The Five Love Languages. And he says in that book, the deepest emotional need that we have is to love and be loved. And as I said, one of the ways you can honor someone uh, and love them is to listen to them. Because we are, as human beings, by our very nature, we are meant to be in loving relationships and our loving relationships are meant to be close, to be intimate. You know, not just, I don't mean just sexual intimacy, I mean emotional intimacy, um, that we're meant to have relationships that go deep and they go wide and it's just wired into us as human beings. And the way that you can foster those relationships with people is by listening to them. Now, in a way, the five love languages are a way of, of listening and communicating love, but in different ways. So, um, so for people who have dementia, 
um, as I said in the first talk, they do have some changes in personality and they have some changes in how they express emotion and how they receive emotion. And so one has to be really mindful of how it is that you love a person. And the five love languages are simple tools that you can use to love a person in the context of, of listening to them. Um, and so the five love languages are quality time, just honoring that person with their, your time, physical touch, uh, encouragement through words of affirmation, acts of service, and through gifts. And so there are ways that you can use all of these love languages to enhance your communication with people in your life, but especially in people with dementia. So does love change, the expression of love change, when someone is affected by Alzheimer's disease? And the answer is, yes, it does. As the disease gets worse, the person becomes more cognitively impaired and their ability to express love diminishes. But the ability to feel loved is preserved all the way to the end of the journey. Even if that person can't reciprocate and say, I love you back, they're able to feel loved all the way to the end of the journey. Am I really out of time, Kim? Okay. So, um, oh, so yes, so we're not going to do the last role play. Sorry, Claire. Um, the challenge in communicating love to someone with dementia is that the depth and breadth of that loving relationship is more in the backpack of the care partner than it is the person with dementia. Because by the very nature of their disease, their ability to express emotion and communicate love is impaired. So you as the care partner, whether you're a family care partner, a friend care partner, a professional medical or mental health professional providing care, that you have the greater burden in the relationship to provide the love in that relationship. And so um, that's what I'm going to end with now is... Um, is just that notion that giving somebody, uh, honoring somebody with your time and being a good listener and using some simple skills can really translate into your own real life examples of being a better listener. So this is, this is uh, now in this role play, I'm the son and this is mom right here. Eddie. Hey mom. So good to see you. So glad you came to see me before mom and I leave for the beach. Come on, I want to give you a hug. We've been packing all morning. She's quick going to the beach. Going? What do you mean we're going to the beach? Mama now. Don't you see her? She's right over there. Eddie, look, say hi to her. I don't see anybody over there. That's mom. We've been packing all morning. You know when I'm taking my bathing suit? We're going to go. Mom, are, are you packing your suitcase again? I packed my suitcase. I'm going to the beach with Mom. We're not. I told you we're not going to the beach. Mom and I've already packed. We're leaving shortly. You want to go with us? I'll put you in the back seat, Eddie. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be oh. driving. No, no. No, Mom's driving. Don't worry. Uh, Mom. H Helen died 25 years ago. She, 
Uh, your mom's not here. There, there's no. nobody there. No, mom. We're not going anywhere. Mom's not here. Come, come on. Come, come with. Yeah, let's just go sit down. Okay. Mom. That's scene one. <laughs> okay. So, um, Amy, so we were talking a little bit beforehand. You know, uh, here I was as the son trying to deal very cognitively to correct mom, say, no, you know, your mom's not here. We're not going to the beach. It's a very cognitive way to deal with a common issue. So people with dementia talk to deceased relatives all the time. They're trying to make a connection with someone who's familiar, who they love. So let's play this a little bit differently, okay? So Mom's here. We're going to go to the beach. I've got everything packed, my suitcase. I've got my bathing suit and everything. Uh, hey, come have a seat, okay? Oh, it's so good to see you again. I'm so glad you came to see me before we left. Yeah. So did you say hey to her? Uh, hey, hey, Helen. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. You do love yeah, her, don't you? What do you love most about her? Oh, gosh, she's she's just the sweetest mom. Yeah. You know, and we've just had so many good times. You have, haven't you? We have. It doesn't seem like you lost her 25 years ago, does it? No. No. No, it feels it's like she's gone just yesterday. And you guys love going to the beach, didn't you? We went to the beach a lot. Hmm. Tell, tell me about the beach. Well, you know, Mom and I would always go up where they had the little Ferris wheel, and we'd get on the Ferris wheel, and we'd get to the top. And one time, we stopped at the top, and we could see the ocean up on the really? top. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Oh, we were scared. <laughs> we were scared but excited. It was great. So she many good great. memories of her, don't you? I love my mom. Yeah. I'll always love my mom, but I think she's right here for me. She's not right. She's she's right inside of you, isn't she? Oh, yes. Yeah, she's there all the time. She's there all the time. All the time. All right. You know what? So, Let's plan that trip to okay. the beach, okay? Can we help me pack? I'll help you pack. Come on. So you can you can see the difference there um, in just how to how to communicate that situation really differently. So um, I th think that that's all that. Oh, I have the clicker in my pocket. See, I forgot that, but that's normal at 65 and a half. I'm not not worried about it in the in the slightest. So anyway, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here again and to share with you. I hope that this talk of Hear Me, I'm Hurting will encourage you to be better communicators uh, with the people in your life that you love uh, and for those who are in your life that are on this, this challenging journey that we call dementia. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already done so, and leave a review if you found this content helpful.